Welcome to the Greenhouse Talent Makers Studio. We're live right now interviewing forward-thinking leaders on every side of the hiring process. Great hiring is not just the result of great recruiters working their magic. It's a company-wide commitment that's vital to building amazing workplaces. And it all starts with our leaders. At Greenhouse, we know that great leaders are talent makers. They understand what it takes to elevate hiring to a strategic capability that pushes the business forward. And it's not easy. That's why we've asked some brilliant folks to join us and share the challenges they've overcome and the lessons that they've learned on the way to aligning their people strategy to their business strategy. So join me and get ready to learn what it means to be a talent maker. Dietrich, CTO and SVP of Engineering. Teresa's career centers on building, growing, and scaling tech orgs and processes. Her experience spans large, medium, and startup companies in tech, media, and service industries. She loves taking orgs and their tech through evolutions based on scale and growth. Teresa believes if you can hire, retain, and progress the right people with the right skills, the rest is easier to get right. She champions diversity because truly diverse teams better understand the problems and make the best decisions. Teresa, thanks so much for being with us today. You're welcome. To kick things off, tell us a little bit about what you loved about your role at McKinsey. I think it was coming into an organization that was just learning how to build products and getting to build, bring all my experience and uh, best practices and really put them to use at scale very quickly. Um, how to build teams, how to hire great technologists, um, how to empower great technologists, um, and how to build the best product possible, where some of, the, some of those best practices or lessons learned that I got to apply immediately. And also in kicking off, we kicked off two to three new products a month. So also that opportunity for continuous learning and improvement. We were constantly tweaking the process and the makeup of the teams and how we did everything that was, for me as an engineer, like at heart, that opportunity to just continuously improve and immediately see the, uh, the impact of that, that improvement was amazing. You have done an enormous amount of work throughout your career building teams. That's one of the kind of core threads and tenets of what um, you've brought to organizations. What are the first things that you focus on when you're taking on a new team? I think um, if it's an existing team, one of the first things I do is really listen to them and, and, and sort of start with like, what are your, um, if you think of it as bugs, sort of your SEV1 bugs, your SEV2 bugs, your SEV3 bugs, right? So where is the house on fire? Where is, uh, where is it smoking and, and what's a fire hazard? And really going in and helping to win trust and really show them the value that I bring as a leader and really helping them problem solve, uh, remove obstacles, get resources or people or money, um, and, and really get them moving and get the stress off of those teams. Because so often when you're given a te- an existing team, it's because there's some performance problems, right? People process or the technology that they're, they're building or leveraging. And so that's one of the first things that I really do. And it also helps me, you know, quickly see who are the leaders, right? Who are, who are the people who are trying to solve the problem? Who are the folks that, that just want to complain about the problem but not actually invest in, in that? So it helps me get a really good feel for the team um, so that then I can start talking about processes. Like, do they have too much process? Do they not have enough process, right? 
right? Is the process used to work, but circumstances have changed and now, and they don't feel empowered to change it. Can I help them change it? So those are kind of like step one and step two I usually like to do. Sounds like, like less about kind of setting a vision for the team and more about truly like a, a roll up your sleeves, start to block and tackle and like make everyone's lives better. <laughs> I think I think usually because they're so in the weeds and usually having so much problems that like vision is a nice to have. Um, and I think it comes a little bit, I think it comes a little bit later. And I think what's nice is that you can get informed with that from other parts of the business or other leaders, right? And then you also can get informed by what they're dealing with day to day. Because I think as a leader, I I sort of think of it as sort of three sets of splitting plates. There's that day-to-day tactical, right? Then there's sort of that short to medium term, like, you know, that, that is, that is strategical. And then there's the long-term strategical that like you're doing. Right. And I think that they all have to sort of cycle around and, and inform each other. And so I think you can win the hearts and minds of them by fixing the tactical because that's the stuff that's really weighing them down. Yes, they want a vision, they want a strategy, but that's not going to kill them. It's going to be the, the day-to-day that just is, is destroying them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how does that process of like coming into a, a new organization, identifying the fires and kind mm-hmm. of prioritizing them, um, how quickly are you able to start thinking about how you want to build the team too? Mm-hmm. What is that process of being like, okay, now I understand what I have. Yep. Where do you start working with the talent team next? Yep. I think one of the things that I love to do in organizations is um, really understand in a technology team, what are their values? And, um, and so, uh, especially when you're coming in as a new leader, you don't want to just be like, here, these should be your five values. Um, so really uh, workshopping with the team and really getting down to sort of what are the core values that they really appreciate, like that identity, who are we as, as an organization and a set of teams. Um, and, and, and sometimes you have to boil them down, uh, you know, because sometimes the, the, what the examples they'll give you are actually outcomes of the values. Um, so that's one of the first things I I love to do because then as you start to design teams, as you start to design process, those values are sort of your um, your standards that you come back to and you say, does this work or not, right? Um, one of the organizations I worked with, what I found pretty quickly is one of their core values was autonomy. And uh, what we had found was that the engineers, when it was small and every engineer was sort of working on their own feature or area, they loved that. They loved that ownership and that autonomy to really to really have full responsibility for that feature set. And so when we started talking about moving to agile teams and everything, they were afraid that was going to go away. So we talked about how in the course of building teams, how do we create autonomy in the teams? And we went so far, which you know, might have been um, stronger than you would do at other organizations, but we really were very strongly in our team and process design about how do we create team autonomy. So how do we chop up um, the roadmap and the platform so that that team really didn't have a large number of dependencies um, from other teams or to other teams? How did we... um, how do we make sure that they could work how they wanted to? So we put very loose constraints like let's everyone start with a two-week sprint. Let's everyone use one system for agile, right? But other than that, 
DIY, right? When do you want to kick off a sprint, right? When do you want to have your stand-ups, right? Do you want to do uh, do you want to do retro ride into backlog grooming or sprint planning, or do you want to break those up across two days, right? Really making them feel like they could play with that and figure out what worked best for the team. And we went so far as to actually having the scrum team, after they've been working together for a while, build their own roadmaps. Because with all the members of the team, right, we had all the aspects from the client perspective and product management, the UX and the designer, the engineers knew where the code was uh, unstable or where they were afraid to go touch, right? Uh, The SRE knew where there wasn't the right level of automation or monitoring. And we actually had them build the roadmap. And it turns out they had such a sense of ownership because of the autonomy we'd given that they were like 90% right uh, on that. And I think it was... I'm so proud of that, and I'm so proud of those teams because they fought for that autonomy, and we made sure they had it, and I think they really leveraged it to be really successful for the business. That's really interesting because what it sounds like is a shift from, like, an individualized perspective on what the culture on that team or that organization was and how to be successful to a kind of team-based model. How did you... How did... What were the signals that you used to know the teams were performing well? What does like a healthy, high-performing team look like to you? Yeah, I think that's I think that's interesting. Um, I think there's a couple different ways to go about it. So one of the things I've done is that. Um, you know, especially as an organization starts to grow and you have multiple leaders, you have one or more people leading engineering, uh, you have, you know, maybe a head of design, a head or two of product management, right? Maybe a head of infrastructure SRE. And these teams get really confused on like where to go to their problems. So one of the things I've done is like almost given them a tech exec sponsor for every team. And so it may be the director of SRE or it may be a director of engineering or product management, but they stay close to that team. And and one, so that they have the context when the team has a problem to help them really go into problem-solving mode quickly, but also that the team is more likely to bring up a problem sooner rather than feeling like they're, you know, tattling or, or escalating, which they're always concerned about doing. So um, that's one of the things I've done. I think, secondly, there is a general, um, if you allow the teams to sort of set their own milestones, right? It's going to take six sprints before we can turn on the feature flag and release this feature. Um, If you let them do that and then they don't hit it, I think, you know, there's a conversation to, to talk about, right? And one of the things I always tell the teams is like, the minute you know that you're less likely than more likely to deliver is the time to raise that flag. And it's not because you're going to get in trouble and the hammer's going to come down on you, but there's all these other all these other moving balls because we've given you that autonomy that you're not necessarily aware of that the sooner we know as leadership, the more we can, you know, actually soften the blowback and the impact to you um, because you do that. I think, you know, other indicators are obviously sort of pulse surveys in the teams, right, and the larger org to say who's happy, who's not happy, right? I think, you know, with with, uh, technologists, one of the biggest things I always say is um, impact, like, are, do they feel like they're having impact? Because I think a lot of the other noise can sort of go away if they really feel like they're delivering something, there's value, it's getting adopted and used and people are happy. Like, that can cover a lot of 
small little, you know, things that you're still tweaking and evolving and everything. So I think you can pretty quickly in a team and a, you know, three to five question poll survey, get a sense. And it's really in the same way that looking at like the number of stories per sprint, it's not an absolute measurement. It's a relative measurement. Is it going up? Is it going down? What's going on? That's super interesting. And you mentioned, um, when you come into a new organization as a leader, uh, a kind of like open-mindedness to what the values are on that specific team and then starting to understand them and codify them. How does that inform how you hire leaders then? You want someone that is going to have that same open-mindedness, but there's probably a little bit of value matching that you try to do as well. What are you looking for in a great... I think, I mean, I think always the more greenfield you have, the more flexible you can be. So it also depends on are you balancing, right? Um, let's say you have five values and let's say you have one you don't you feel like you're missing a champion for one of those values then you might actually like really seek out somebody that has a specific profile uh to do that Uh, you know i think um great leaders are people who take so much more personal value from helping others succeed than they ever do from their own personal successes. So, um, I, you know, when I'm looking at for leaders, I'm always looking for, like, you know, tell me the stories about people who you've helped or teams you've helped, right? How, how have you done that? Um, I think I'm looking for people that are, are empathetic, right? Um, people who value diversity, obviously, um, and not just the sort of demographic diversity, but um, backgrounds, education, um, industry experience, size of company experience, because I really do believe diversity, not just at the you know scrum team level, but actually at the leadership level is too, right? The more diverse opinions and perspectives that we have, the better as a leadership team that we're going to, uh, to, to make decisions. So um, I would say those are some of the ones, as well as people who are like a value, something I really value is sort of calm under pressure. Because I think when leaders lose their their patience, um, the team can just be crushed unnecessarily. They've already got enough stress. So somebody who just gets calmer, sometimes the uh, the harder things get. Yeah, absolutely. I think something really interesting that's come out of this conversation so far is that you're clearly thinking about talent all the time. Um, a lot of our audience is recruiters and mm-hmm. you know talent practitioners, and I think that they don't understand that that's happening for so many of the rest of the business leaders, not just within the talent function. A, how much time do you feel, like what percent of your job is actually pretty talent and org related versus technology related? And how do you, like describe what's been your best partnership with the talent team. Mm-hmm. How do you create that and how would you try to replicate it somewhere else? So good. So, you know, it's funny that you said that, right? Like, I actually, when I talk about, like, my roles for the last, you know, I don't know, six, seven, eight years, I talk about myself as an orchestra conductor, okay? I'm not the first chair of any section. I'm the orchestra conductor if the orchestra is technology. And so um, how valuable is an orchestra conductor if he has no orchestra? or she has no orchestra, right? So, of course, I spend a lot of time thinking about talent because I want the best possible orchestra, right? Um, my, I alone do not create value anymore. I create value through orchestrating and empowering and enabling everyone else. So, yes. Um, honestly, at this point, it is, you know, more than 50% of my time, whether it be from, you know, going out and talking 
right, at conferences, at events, um, to bring our profile up, to bring my profile up, to talk about what we're doing, whether it be our culture or the problems we're solving. Um, I spent, I've spent time building matrices, right, for our various roles, uh, working with the team um, to do that, to build uh, interviewing processes, right? How do we take our, our, now we have our matrices, how do we turn those competencies into how we interview and how do we build, um, you know, problems or use cases or questions around that to help us validate what we've decided are our core competencies and what we're looking for to actually interviewing, um, doing a lot of, you know, especially in, in attracting diversity candidates. Uh, I'm lucky enough to, to not be the stereotypical CTO. So even just doing an early stage calls um, with potential uh, engineers, um, even if it goes nowhere, just to make that connection, they're excited to talk to a CTO. They love to just, you know, to learn more about the company and, and ask, you know, who knows what questions, but just that opportunity to being a part of the interviewing process, to being on feedback calls, to helping making calls on decisions about, you know, titling or banding or where in the salary range should we offer, uh, what's appropriate, how do we make decisions on that, talking about learning, right? How much should we be spending on the learning? What should we, what should we offer? What should we make uh, sort of standard versus uh, self-directed learning? How should we balance that? Uh, review cycles, doing reviews, right? Calibrating reviews, changing the cycle, getting feedback, right? Giving feedback, one-on-ones. So yeah, more than 50%. <laughs> so let's imagine there's a new VP of engineering. Mm -hmm who is new to that level. Mm -hmm. And they're thinking for the first time about how do I really attract the best possible talent into this org, it's a competitive space. What would be the kind of one or two things that you would recommend really leaning into as a talent magnet? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it would be two, the first two things I would say is, what is the talent brand of your team, right? What is the value proposition of why working on your team as an engineer for this VP of Eng, what is it about it that's going to be a different differentiating um, what's going to be specific about this, right? What are the opportunities and the impact that they can have? And really coming up with that. Um, I think that people don't value that enough, especially technology leaders don't value that enough, but you really need to be able to give that to the talent team, right? And be able to have the whole team be able to talk about that consistently outside of there, right? I think the second thing is sort of similar, but for them. As a leader, why would someone want to work for me? I always say people work for people, right? They work for companies, but they really work for people. And when people quit, they often quit working for people, right? So I think, what is it that you bring, right? And, and you can do that through getting feedback from people that are currently or have worked for you. Like, what is the value proposition of working for me? What, you know, how do I consistently empower, enable, right? What are, what are the, those things? So those are the two places I would tell with them to start. Um, and then I think it's building a lot of the rest of it around those. When, in the same way the, the org values or the team values, it's the same way. Um, I would sort of start there and that will really inform how you, you know, based on what your, like, for example, based on what your personal value is, 
Um, maybe that says what kind of conferences you should talk at. Maybe it talks about what kind of topics you should talk about, right? Um, maybe what topics you should write about in a blog post or something like that. But I feel like otherwise, um, new leaders tend to just, you know, try and do it all and or, or just feel so defeated because they don't know where to start. And I think that will, th those two activities will help you get a sense of, like, where to even start, like, on this big map. Absolutely. This conversation reminds me of a study that we did recently that showed that most executives say that talent is at least one of their top three priorities, but they then self-report that they're only spending about three hours on talent-related stuff a month. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Yes. So we've all seen what it looks like when something doesn't work out, a talent practice or program that, that you put in place, um, and that can teach us a lot. So maybe what's a, a cautionary tale that you you tried or you saw someone else do that you now carry with you as a, a lesson learned I think one of them that I've one of the one of the cautionary tales I've seen is um, engineers like to engineer things, and um, and I've seen them make build interview processes that are so would be fantastic for a machine and are not at all a pleasant experience for a person. And funny enough, we're interviewing people. So I've seen them from everything from, you know, senior staff engineer levels being asked to do a two or three hour coding test before they even talk to someone at the company. I, I've seen them um, uh, go back to back to back to back to back meetings, right? And not being thoughtful about how do we mix up ones that are more conversational versus more hands-on problem solving. Um, I've seen, uh, I, I, you know, I've seen them not set expectations, you know, have a kickoff call before they start and just, you know, it, it's a machine, right? And they, they sort of grade the interview and there's none of that sort of empathy and understanding of the specific individual and uh, appreciation of the diversity and the backgrounds they come into. I feel like that's one of the, one of the ones where I've seen like, um, the biggest just like, you know, face palm, sort of like, you did what? Right? Um, and, and I, I, you know, engineers love to get the perfect solution, but they're used for building for, com for computers, for machines, for systems, and not for people. And, uh, and so I think it's, you know, why a great relationship with your recruiting team and the engineers, if you do it right, you can actually come up with the one that's going to help us select the best engineers, but also having a great candidate experience at the same time. That's exactly what I was thinking is to your point of, you know, taking an ownership role and how the pipeline is going and looking at the data. If you build a process like that, it'll show up in the data. Yeah. People won't make it through or they'll drop out yeah. or your candidate surveys will yeah. be horrible. And so knowing that you're keeping a, a close eye on that gives you the data you need for a team that wants to build a perfect process mm -hmm. to get the input they need to go kind of iterate on it yeah. again too. Well, to that point, it was funny. I was talking to an organization um, two weeks ago and uh, they, you know, I was asking them, what are the, what are the, some of the biggest challenges you as a technology org are facing? And they said, uh, hiring engineers. We're behind in hiring engineers. And, you know, I immediately go into problem-solving mode. And I was like, where is it? Is it top of the funnel? Is it getting them to, you know, you f they don't exist or they're not responsive or, uh, you know, initial phone screen, they don't meet the requirements, right? Um, you reject them. They don't accept your offer. And they just looked at me with a blank face, right? And I was like, 
you guys are engineers. You're supposed to troubleshoot this stuff, right? Um, and uh, it, it, it was so just like like they, they just knew they just knew the symptom was they weren't they weren't hiring enough engineers, but they didn't feel enough ownership to dig into this workflow, if you will, to really to really you know troubleshoot it, look at the data, and figure out where the where the problem was, and and, and brainstorm with what to come come up with to fix those problems. It's funny how often it does feel like that recruiting gets left in this bucket where it's like, oh, but it's this human thing, so we're not going to treat it like a symptom or a, a process with data to dive into and to take apart and put back together. It's just like, eh, it kind of breaks and we leave it on the side. And an on-off switch. I love how many people think it's an on-off switch. And I'm like, no. Like, if, if it's flowing well after you turn it off, how long it's going to take you to get it back to flowing well is, it, you know, is not something that you can, like, you can afford to do for, the, for most companies. Absolutely. Very much so. The world of hiring is challenging. It's especially challenging in technical spaces. Um, and I feel like we talk about that a lot. But as you look to the future, what do you feel excited about? What do you feel optimistic is changing in the right direction? I think that, you know, when I graduated from college a while ago, um, there was sort of hard technologists, right? Um, you were you were either a, a, a someone who came out with a hard degree out of a school, right, a CS or an engineering degree, or you were someone who, like, had literally, like, not left your basement in the last eight years through high school and college and were self-taught, right? Those were sort of the two the two options. And I feel like that made that group very small. And I think now, um, over the years, I've seen that group widen, right? Now we have languages like React, which we didn't have before, right? And we have sort of gateways into it, right? We now have the whole sort of design thinking, and you end up with designers who decide well, I could start doing some of this. And so I think we have, the, the, there's so many now levels and gateways into technology that makes it really exciting. Um, you know, I personally hire on two very fundamental principles, attitude and aptitude. Those are the two things I can't teach you. I can teach you literally anything else. I can, you know, give you access to sites. I can send you to conferences or trainings, right? I can give you, I once had a guy who wanted to learn uh, a language and took a train cross country for a week. And I was like, go, if that's that's how you learn, go do it. But I think, you know, attitude, they have to want to be there. They have to be interested in the problems we're solving. They've got to want to work in a team environment and not be like, just leave me alone and I'll do mine and I don't want to have to interact with people. And then on aptitude, you've got to be able to show me that um, you like to learn, you're passionate about learning because the only thing consistent in life is change and in technology we're just 10x the normal pace and I think that's only going to increase in the future um, and so and that you uh, and that you've figured out how you learn right so that you you know if I say to a team of 10 okay you're now learning this new technology and shouldn't be they all learn the same way right that sort of just in time self-directed learning is so important to technologists and I think both, I think those that I've centered on are only getting more important because not only is the breadth of technologies and languages and frameworks growing all the time, but how often they're changing. And also how, how much the, um, the switching cost between those technologies and languages shrinking so that you can't, it used to be like once you were invested, like you were invested. Um, and now you can do that. And so I really, it really comes back to me that that's what's important in, in hiring folks. And I think that 
Um, and also, like, you know, these younger generations, they've been in tech from day one. And I think what we have to do is teach them that, you know, what they're doing is tech, right? I think, you, I think that for so long, tech was seen as sort of this black box or this, this magic. And I think especially to get... Um, more of our diverse candidates, right? Women are nowhere near 50% of the tech population, but they are 50% of the human population. We've got to recharacterize things that are more accurate, right? And that it's not this really hard, complicated, uh, unsexy thing, but that you're helping people. And, and people love to help people. And if you think about it like that, as opposed to just playing with a cool new toy or learning a cool new language, I think that we can really continue to open up the people that come into technology. Teresa, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been awesome to have this conversation and learn from your experience here. I hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you so much. joining us in the Talent Makers Studio. Tune in to our next episode as we explore stories of how great leaders and managers at companies like VaynerMedia, TalkDesk, Alphabet, and Bevy are transforming business by changing their approach to hiring. You can also learn more by visiting greenhouse.io backslash talentmakers. makers.